0: Okay, so, so we've been going, we're going through Leviticus recently, and then a while before that we went through the book of Exodus. And actually, the end of Exodus, after about chapter 25, talks all about the temple and temple sacrifices. And then in Leviticus, it's the same thing, where Leviticus talks about the different sacrifices, about the ordination of the priests, Aaron the high priest. And the last things we looked at were the Day of Atonement, and the importance of blood. So, uh, and, and when we're going through Leviticus, it explains how the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, goes into the most holy place. And when he goes in there, everybody else clears out of the temple. So he goes in all by himself, alone, solo. And he enters into the most holy place, which represents the presence of God but he has to go in with blood. And the significance of blood is the blood is associated with atonement. He does it only once a year, only on one specific day. Which shows us on the one hand, you can't do this all the time. This is only going to happen once. But the fact that it had to be done over and over and over again meant there was something incomplete about it. Something was imperfect. That this was foreshadowing all the things. When the temple was constructed, were all foreshadowing things that would be fulfilled in Christ. That he as the ultimate faithful high priest would enter into the most holy place in the heaven itself with his own blood and make atonement for our sins and then the, the veil was torn in two representing his body from top to bottom opening up the way to, to access to God for all of us. So this all ties in with what we've been talking about in Leviticus 16, Leviticus 17 about the importance of blood that it says... Um, it says that the, the, it, it's blood that makes atonement for us in Leviticus 17. And in Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10, it talks about how the blood of Christ opens up the way for us. And uh, Leviticus 17, 11, we talked about that in the last lesson. It says, "...the life of all flesh is in the blood, and blood makes atonement for your souls." So that would be was ultimately fulfilled in, in the blood of Christ. As I mentioned, we asked, asked at the beginning here, who wrote Hebrews? And Adam correctly answered, nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. Uh, the, uh, uh, it doesn't say who wrote... A lot of people think Paul wrote it. Over, over history, a lot of people have said they think Paul wrote it, but we can't prove it. And there, even in ancient times, there are some people who thought he did and some people who thought he didn't. What do we know about the author? Well, we know... That whoever received the letter knew who it was from, because he says, please pray for us. So they had to be they had to know who they're praying for. So it wasn't, it wasn't some random anonymous letter. They knew it was something from somebody important who was writing under inspiration, but we they knew who it was and we don't. So that's that's a little, a little frustrating. It says Hebrews 13, 23, 24, the author of Hebrews personally knew Timothy. And um, Eusebius said, I think Eusebius said that that he believed that Paul was the author, but he said that there are some Christians in Rome where Paul was who said it wasn't Paul who wrote it. So it's it's, it's we don't know for sure. As far as when it was written. Now there was a catastrophic event that took place in 70 A.D. So this is less than 40 years after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. Oh, oh, the burning of the temple. Well, yes. So Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans under Titus. It was obliterated. The temple was destroyed. The walls were. The walls were. Were, uh, were knocked down, the city was obliterated by the Roman army, and the, this is this is a huge event known all over the world, and Judaism was never the same after that. This ended the sacrificial system. It's actually a fulfillment of a prophecy by Jesus in, in Matthew 24, and also... Um, the fulfillment of prophecy by Jesus in Matthew 24, this would happen also in Daniel 9. There's a prophecy about how Jerusalem was going to be destroyed after the after the Christ came, the Messiah. So, uh, so Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, the temple was obliterated, the sacrificial system was done for all. So consider this statement from the last chapter of Hebrews. It says, We have an altar, this is about the Christians from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought to the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. So, sounds like, at the time he's writing, that these sacrifices are still going on. So people assume that this is written sometime before A.D. 70, sometime before the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed once and for all. The next question is, who was the author writing to? And it says it's written to the letter to the Hebrews, so I'm guessing it's it's written to Jewish people from a Jewish background. And uh, it's, it's, so what do we know about the people receiving the letter? So they're they're from a Jewish background, they're Christians, and Hebrews is saturated with references to the Old Testament. And actually, there are more now, I, I, I see more references, because if you look at the bottom of the page, most Bibles will have where, where a passage is quoted from a book of the Old Testament, they'll have the reference there. However, there's a lot of other things that are alluded to. They're not quoted, they're paraphrased, they're alluded to, or will mention some character in an Old Testament book. So... Whoever wrote Hebrews assumes that the person reading his letter has a very deep knowledge of the Old Testament, extraordinary knowledge of the Old Testament. I, I, I remember... Hearing once a Bible teacher saying one of the important reasons for studying the Old Testament is if you ever want to understand Hebrews and Revelation, there are two books. That if you don't have a good handle on the Old Testament, you're going to miss most of what's going on. I think he said that three quarters of the book of Hebrews was either direct quotes from the Old Testament or references to things in the Old Testament. And and looking back on that, I think that estimate might even be a little on the low side. So uh, that's 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 my own my own guess here. So. This is one we we focus in our house church a lot on studying the Old Testament, and I think this is in studying Hebrews is one place where we're going to see a lot of benefit in that you can really understand how the pieces fit together and and what's going on. So now, what may seem to be completely obvious to us, but it's not to everybody. Is that the writer is addressing people who are already Christians? So some things in the scriptures, you know, Acts chapter two, Peter's pe- preaching to people who are, who are Jews, but they're not yet Christians. They believe the Christ is coming. They don't believe in Jesus. Hebrews is written to people who already are Christians, and this becomes significant when you when you consider the the implications. Some of the things that he's saying. Uh, there are places in here where he talks about in several places where you got to watch out you've got to be careful you got to be diligent so you don't lose your salvation so if somebody believes that a person can't lose their salvation what do you do with that? well you'd have to say well he must have been writing to people who weren't who weren't Christians yet because if you become a Christian you can't lose your salvation that's kind of the main point of Hebrews is you need to persevere you need to be diligent you need to you need to make it to the end not just becoming just starting as a Christian is not going to cut it so uh, he's writing to people that were already Christians. He's writing to people who were already Christians. And think about this. Think about some statements that he makes in here about what are the people like he's writing to. Hebrews, Hebrews 5, verses 12 and 14 says, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness; he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So he says, "Look, you, you know, you're by now. You've already had the milk. You should be moving on to solid food by now. You should be more mature than you are." He said, in fact, you ought to be teachers by now. You should be teaching other people, not just, not just uh, uh, members of the church. Also, Hebrews, Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34, he says, Recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So these were people who, in the early days of being being Christians, after they had been enlightened, after they had received the light, he says they faced tremendous persecution, suffering. They had some of their property taken away from them. So Paul's reminding them of what they did in the early days as Christians. So these are people who have been Christians for a while. They've made it through early trials in their faith of, of suffering and persecutions and things like that. And by this time, they ought to be teachers. So these are people who have been Christians. Most of the people writing to who have been Christians for, for a while here. Uh, now, the other thing, this and may, this may be uh, news a news flash to some, some people in here, the version of the Old Testament that they were reading was based on the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation that was made about 200 years before the time of Jesus. And, okay, for, for many years, I was reading, I read, the, I read the NIV for many years, and I switched off to the New King James for different reasons. And read that for many years, and then and then David Berceau once said, "You know, Chuck, you teach the Old Testament a lot. I'd be kind of curious if you ever read a version based on the Septuagint, the Old Greek translation that the apostles generally quote from." So I just decided, "Well, I'm going to check that." I started reading that, and so I read that. I'm reading the Sept a version based on the Septuagint. It's very very similar, but there's some differences. All of a sudden, I started seeing a few. I said, oh, now I know what they're talking about when they're quoting this or when they're quoting that. Or when I go back and look at a, a, a passage from the Old Testament, it, it lines up. Now, that this is, this is the case in, in Hebrews here. I'll give you two examples. I could give a lot more. This is not a class about the Septuagint. This is a class about Hebrews. But just the Hebrews writer assumes that this is what he's reading and this is what he assumes you're reading. You can. Uh, uh, I'll give you a couple of examples here in Hebrews chapter 10 There are two examples in Hebrews chapter 10 where if you look back in most bibles it, it, and when, when it's quoting from the old testament it doesn't say anything like this But if you're looking if you're reading a bible based on the Septuagint actually it, it, that's you know what he's talking about In Hebrews 10 starting in verse 5 it says therefore when he came into the world he said sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you have prepared for me And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. So he's making a point here. He says, I wasn't pleased with sacrifices and burnt offerings under the old system, but a body you have prepared for me. And he says that body you have prepared for me is a prophecy in the Psalms about Jesus. that's talking about the body of Christ. Now, if you look in most Bibles... In the old testament passage quoted here, it doesn't say anything about a body being prepared at all. It's nothing like that. And it's because he's not quoting from the Masoretic text, which most modern Bibles are based on, he's quoting from the Septuagint, which is where exactly what it says. So you, you compare the two, you compare the two Bibles, you say, Oh, obviously, not only is he quoting from the Septuagint, the whole point he's making is based on what it says in the Septuagint, not in the Masoretic text. So that's one example. There's another one I had a little bit of fun with once. Um, I was in a teacher's group in, in a large church. and We had a meeting in Boston about 20 people who were involved in teaching. And I was doing something on Hebrews chapter 11. I said, well, just, just as, the, as the warm-up for what we're going to talk about in Hebrews chapter 11, let's look at what introduces that. And so I read from Hebrews chapter 10. I was having a little fun with the people in the class. And I said, start in verse 35, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promised. For yet a little while, and he who's coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just, or in some translations it will say the righteous, will live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe the saving of the soul. And this is a quote from Habakkuk two. So I, I said, so I asked the, the group of teachers in there a question. I said, first question is, where does it say in the Old Testament the righteous or the just shall live by faith? And everybody yeah, looked down at the bottom of the page. Oh, that's Habakkuk chapter two. Okay. I said, great. Next question, where does it say? But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Crickets, blank stares, the sound of pages in the Bible rustling. As people were looking for this, and and I I said to to those in the class, I said, when I'm done, I said, after this, this lesson is over, I said, if you can find the passage where it says that in your Bible, come up and show me. And I says if you can't show me in your bible I'll show you in mine where it is. Okay? And so there was a, there was one of the guys in the class named Terry Trout. So he's he's trout and I'm pike so you know we're we're bound, we're <laughs> destined to be that forged a good friendship right there. So two two narrow freshwater fish, pike and trout. So so, so Terry Trout, this destroyed him for the rest of the lesson because somebody, somebody threw him a Bible question he couldn't answer. He's, he spends the rest of the class, he's, 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 he's looking in the Scriptures, trying to figure this thing out. And, and then he comes up afterwards and he says, Wait a minute, you said you'll show me in your Bible. Let me see that Bible you've got. <laughs> so he grabbed the Bible and he started looking through it. He said, Wait a minute, this is, not like, this is not like other Bibles. What are you doing here? And I said, Well, actually... This is a quote from the Septuagint. We're in Habakkuk chapter 2 in the Septuagint. That's what it says. It talks about both, the righteous one will live by faith, but it also talks about, but but the one who draws back, my soul will take no pleasure in him. So I said he's quoting, and not only is he quoting it, this is the point he's making. He says we're not of those who draw back to perdition. We're not those people. We're the other ones. We need to be the ones who are living by faith. Now, this this statement, the righteous will live by faith, if it's familiar to it, it should be, because it also shows up in Romans and Galatians. The point in Romans is kind of like the theme of Romans, but it's also the theme of Hebrews. The, the, The whole point in Romans is the righteous shall live by faith, meaning not by the law of Moses. Okay, here he's saying the righteous shall live by faith. Meaning it is a way of life that continues to the end. You don't shrink back. You don't believe for a little while and then abandon ship. Okay? A righteous shall live by faith and not shrink back. The meaning will continue to the end. So two different points of very powerful scripture. But again, it's based on, on the on the Septuagint text. So I'm thinking, okay, if I'm if I'm gonna understand Hebrews the author assumes the people he's writing to are reading the Septuagint. I better read that. And actually, I found a couple other places too where it's like, aha, now I see what he's talking about. This makes a lot more sense. So, so that's the... That's he's uh, that, that, writing to Jews who are familiar with the Septuagint, who've been Christians for a while, but maybe they're not at the top of their game. He says, you know, you should be teachers by now, but but they had a good start spiritually. So they, were, they had strong faith, they had endured persecution in the beginning. The other thing here, it says, uh, in, in this passage, it says, this is actually significant, verse 37, it says, uh, yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. All right, and, and the Septuagint is very clear. This is masculine. He who is coming, the one who is coming. Okay, and some of the some Bible translations based on the Masoretic text that will say that which is coming. You know, like something or some event is coming. It says no. He who is coming will not delay. It's very explicit, very clear. So somebody's coming here, and I think we know who that is. Uh, Could you state those two different interpretations for this real quick? Want me to read them? What's uh, that? Well you had said like the, the view of the just shall live by faith. Yeah. I didn't quite okay, the, okay. so so in, in Romans verse in Hebrews, in Romans and Hebrews, both of them, huge scripture is the righteous shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith. The emphasis in Romans is the righteous shall live by faith, not by the law of Moses. The righteous shall live by faith, not by the law of Moses. In Hebrews, the emphasis is the righteous will live by faith, meaning it's a, it continues over time. It's a way of life. We live by faith. We don't shrink back. Okay, that's, that's the emphasis here in what he's saying. So they're, they're making two really powerful points out of the same, out of the same scripture. Great question. So I hope that's that helps clarify. Thank you. Uh, so, so the question of who now the, another question is why was Hebrews written? What's the purpose of, of Hebrews? What's the, the main point that Hebrews was written? Because I think it's better if you understand. Okay, this is the overarching point of the whole book, rather than just take you know chapter one and then chapter two, chapter three in isolation. Say okay, what's the whole message of the book? And if the, I've, got a, I've got a study Bible. I generally ignore all the study notes and just read, read the text. But I'll, I'll give you an idea what it says in, in the study Bible. This is an Orthodox study Bible, which be similar to other study Bibles. Uh, it says in the background, this is on page 1652, Orthodox study Bible. It says, Hebrews seems to be written to Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. Uh, perhaps in Palestine, who were being drawn back to Judaism. Okay, really? How do you know that? <laughs> okay, indeed, some had returned to their roots partly because of a low view of Jesus, hence the sub-themes, the superiority of Christ, his sacrifice over Judaism, uh, and encouragement to continue in the Christian faith. So so the the the, the, the notes here say... This is a book about Jews who are struggling with the idea of going back to Judaism. And I'm reading the book, and and reading at the end of the book all the therefore statements. He makes the the powerful case for Christ as the great high priest, and all the great things that have, that, have, that have happened, and then the applications about how we need to make sure that the, he is the faithful high priest. We need to make sure we are faithful and we don't give up and we hang in there at the end. There's nothing about that. Anyway, it's like, in, there, were, there were people who struggle with that. In Galatians it talks about that. Maybe in Colossians and, and Ephesians it, it alludes to that. But in Hebrews here... All the problems that they're addressing—it's not that they're trying to go back to circumcision and the law of Moses. Nothing about that. It's really more basic things. It's the kind of things that we all struggle with. They happen to be from a Jewish background, but I don't pick up anything that they're struggling with going back to Judaism. I'll give you give you a, 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 some some evidence of why I think that. So. After chapter 10, there's a focus on therefore you need to do such and such or therefore you need to make sure you don't do such and such. So here are the things that they're talking about. So I mean, how many of these can you relate to and how many of these sound like a Jew who wants to go back to the law of Moses and circumcision? Okay, beware of getting into willful, deliberate sin. Don't stop assembling with the other Christians. Hebrews 12:1 Lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Endure hostility from sin- from sinners meaning persecution. Endure the painful chastening the Lord may bring into our lives which is intended to refine us and perfect us. Live holy lives don't give in to bitterness. Strive to remain to, to remain at peace with other people. Don't be like Esau, who was a fornic don't be a fornicator or a profane person like Esau, who is just living for short-term gratification of the flesh and, and, and cast off his internal inheritance. Don't be like that. Entertain strangers, practicing hospitality, honoring marriage, living in sexual purity, avoiding fornication. Being content with what you have and not be, not be envying other people of what they have. Amen. Being willing to bear reproach for the sake of Christ. Giving thanks to God with our lips. Doing good and sharing with those in need. Being in submission to those in the church who are leading them. These are the things he says, this is what you need to do. This is the conclusion, the application. Does that sound like people are struggling with going back into Judaism? No, it sounds like us. <laughs> Honestly, it sounds like people like us. they just happen to be from a Jewish background, but they're struggling with all the same things that Christians do today. So we're—I think uh, most or all of us are Gentiles in this room, but uh, but everybody struggles with the same thing. Let's let's face it, we're all struggling with the same thing. So to me, Hebrews is an extremely practical book for us. It's not just—it's not about people. Not like Galatians about people who are tempted with going back to the law of Moses. So, in my opinion, now you can think about this before you reject it offhand. In my opinion, after somebody becomes a Christian and understands the basic teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, after you have that foundation, once you're already a Christian, Hebrews may be the most important book in the entire Bible. Why would I say that? Because this is the book that t- talks about what's it going to make after you become a Christian, what's it going to take to make it to the end, to gain eternal life. It's about persevering and enduring through hardship and tough times, which is where most of us are. That's the main focus of this book. It's, it's mentioned in other places, but there's no place like Hebrews where it's mentioned in such great detail. That's where I am. So I need this. This is one of my favorite books of the Bible. Now Hebrews has dissuaded a lot of Christians from taking it seriously because there's so many Old Testament references, for one thing. And then there's all the stuff about Melchizedek for three chapters. Melchizedek, you know, think, well, what does that have to do with my life? There's all this business about Melchizedek, all the things about the temple sacrifice system and the blood of animals. In the middle of Hebrews, that turns a lot of people off to think, you now, this isn't a book I need to read. This isn't practical. This is written to Jewish people. It's written to Hebrews. But no, Hebrews is written to talk about what's it going to take for us to make it to the end about perseverance and the importance of that. Persevering in the face of temptations of the flesh, temptations of sexual sin, greed, selfishness, envy, not willing to share with other people. Temptations to get lazy and worldly. There are people who were passionate about their faith, but they started to wane over a period of time. Temptations to become bitter towards other people who have hurt you. And a lack of gratitude toward God. There's there's all these temptations. So it tells us not only what we should do, but why we should do these things. There's a lot of things about motivation and example in here also. So I want to, to dive into Hebrews now, and this is going to be a quick overview of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 starts off with Jesus. And mm-hmm. had a discussion with somebody this week who was talking about, you know, some Bibles are focused, they're Bible-centered, some po- focus are church-centered, Their church-focused on the community. He said, I want to go to a church that's Jesus-centered. Jesus should be the center. And Jesus is the center of Hebrews. Hebrews is all about Jesus. It starts and ends with Jesus. And Hebrews 1 starts off with God spoke through the prophets in the past, but now he's spoken to us through his son, through his only son. The whole idea about Jesus being the son of God and lived in for a few years in a a Muslim country and have uh, friends who are reaching out to people in the Muslim world and one of the standard things I hear all over the world from Muslims is God can't have a son. This is something the Christians made up that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus was a great prophet, he was the Christ, but he's not the son of God because God can't have a son. Best place are a billion Muslims in the world, right? Plus, the Jehovah's Witnesses, other people that have difficulty accepting the divinity of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, in my opinion, is the best place to go. The best place to start, because right off the bat, there are two powerful prophecies from the Old Testament, written a thousand years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, that explain that he is he would be the Son of God. Let's start in Hebrews chapter one, verse one. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by the Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had, him, had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, and he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son today I have begotten you. That's from Psalm 2. Very famous prophecy about Jesus. You are my son, today I have begotten you. He's the only begotten son of the Father, as David explained in Psalm 2, a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Continuing, and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And that's a fascinating prophecy in in, uh, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, also also repeated in 1 Chronicles 17 that's not that well known by Christians, but actually ties into a lot of what follows here in Hebrews. But when he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus is the son of God, established by David. The Christ would be the son of God. And that he will be worshipped by angels. We know from Revelation 22, 8 and 9 where John bows down before an angel and the angels. what does the angel say? The angel says, don't worship me. You only worship God. Okay. So so Jesus is worshipped by angels. What does that tell you? That he is divine. There's, there's, no, there's no other uh, conclusion to that. So uh, the third... The uh, quote here is from a very important scripture where it says I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 or if you have a, a bible that's based on the Septuagint it will be called First Kingdoms chapter 7 and actually <clears throat> this ties into what follows because Jesus, the Hebrew writer just quotes <clears throat> a little fragment of the prophecy in 2nd Samuel 7. But understanding the full prophecy will help you to will help you understand what it's talking about later on in Hebrews. So let's let's take a look at this. So uh, so I'm sorry, 2nd 2nd Samuel 7, which will be 2nd Kingdoms chapter 7. David is consolidating the kingdom. In verse 1, it came to pass when the king sat in his house that the Lord had given him an inheritance on every side, free from all his enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I live in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in the middle of a tent. So he says, look, I'm living in a house. The ark of God is in a tent. And David says, I want to build a house for God. So the, the, the tabernacle was a tent. It was a cloth structure. David wants to build a permanent structure of stone and timber. He wants to build the... the uh, instead of the tabernacle, he wants to build the temple for, for God, replace that. So he wants to build a house for the Lord. And Nathan first says, good idea, go ahead and build a house. And the, the Lord speaks to Nathan at night, and he says, David is not the one who's going to build my house. In verse 12, it says, And it shall come about, when you're, Nathan is speaking to David, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will prepare his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be my son. So that's the passage we just read that was quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. And if he commits iniquity, I will chase him with the rod of men and the blows of the sons of men. But I will not take my mercy from him as I took it from those whom I, whom I withdrew with my presence. His house will be made sure, and his kingdom shall be forever. So, David's desire, it says, I want to build a house. Nathan says, no, you will not build the house someone else with. One from your own body will build the house after you die and rest with your fathers. And he says, God says, I will raise him up and I will prepare his kingdom. It will be a kingdom that will never end. And it says, I will be a father to him and he will be my son, right? This prophecy is not quoted when the angel Gabriel speaks to Mary in Luke chapter 1, he's not quoting this prophecy, but he's applying all the elements of this prophecy to her. He's saying that the one, she is descended from David, the king over the eternal kingdom is going to come from her, and he's going to be called the Son of God. So he's basically the one that's fulfilling the prophecy from a thousand years beforehand. So this is a this is another prophecy about Jesus being the Son of God, but it also says that he will build the temple. A lot of people think, oh, this is a prophecy about Solomon. Couldn't have been about Solomon. As early Christians pointed out, first of all, it says that he will be raised up after David dies. Solomon became king while David was still alive, first of all. Second of all, the kingdom and the temple didn't last forever. Established by Solomon, built a temple, but it didn't last forever, and his kingdom didn't last forever either. And then the fourth thing is, whoever called Solomon the Son of God? Okay? Nobody did. So so this this it collapses is, is O for four in terms of the four statements if you look at it carefully. So it doesn't apply to Solomon, it applies to Jesus. And I think Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, Peter is alluding to this prophecy as well when he talks about the one who would come from David's body. It's the fulfillment of this prophecy right here. Uh, so Hebrews chapter 1, it talks of, it's, it's talking about the divinity of Christ. It says, let, Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2, it says, He was made a little lower than the angels, which means he was he was higher than the angels to start off with. But then he was made lower than the angels. He was divine, but he was made man. He was made a little lower than the angels, a quote from Psalm 8. It says, Your throne, O God, will last forever, referring to the Son. So it's referring to him as God right there. So if anybody ever, ever says, well, where in the Bible does it talk about Jesus as being God? It's right here in, in, uh, in Hebrews where it, where it uh, talks about the uh, your throne, O God, will, will be forever. It says he's sitting at the right hand of God. Let's read from Psalm 110, the first four verses, or in the Septuagint, it's Psalm 109. This is important for what follows. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool for your feet. The Lord shall send forth the rod of your power from Zion and rule in the midst of your enemies. With you is the beginning in the day of your power, in the brightness of your saints. I have begotten you from the wound before the morning star. The Lord swore and will not repent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So, Melchizedek, this is the first time I, can, I know of, the only time Melchizedek is mentioned other than there are two two brief verses in Genesis where Abraham comes back from offering the sacrifice. So so Melchizedek is mentioned two verses in Genesis and then he he vanishes but then here it says you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So, So the priest to come would be one who was like Melchizedek. Let's read Hebrews chapter 3. A whole bunch of things are going to come together here. Hebrews 3. This is a real pivotal passage in Hebrews, but if you don't know the Old Testament scriptures behind it, you can easily miss it. Hebrews 3:1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession Christ Jesus who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Now in the first six verses, i want only to count how many times the word house shows up. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, But he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. For a testimony of those things which will be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So... I counted, seven, seven mentions. It's house, 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 house. So it says house is in there seven times. So House is a pretty important, important word here. Now, house in English, just like in Greek, has all kinds of meanings. It's an extremely versatile word, all right? If I say I am reciting my house, you go over to my house, you see there's some scaffolding up there and I'm reciting my house, I'm working on my house, you understand, oh, that's the physical building that Chuck lives in. Um, if I were to say, my, my grandfather, when we used to go out for dinner at a restaurant, my grandfather was, was, was a real wise guy. He was, he was, a, he was an orthodontist, but he, he had a, a crazy sense of humor. So whenever he, we'd go out to dinner at restaurant, he would, he would, in a stage whisper, when, when the waiter was nearby, he would find someone at the table and wish them happy birthday, whether it was their birthday or not. And why would he do that? Because then the, they would scurry into the back and bring out a free cake. So he, he would do, he had a habit of doing this. It's not, not very righteous, but it was his own sense of humor. And they bring out the cake. The cake we wouldn't pay for, it would be on the house. Okay, meaning... The restaurant's paying for the cake, not, not us. So that's another meaning of the word house. I'm working on my house. You go to a restaurant. Well, this is the specialty of the house. That means the, the place where you are. The house of God is the temple. If we use the expression the house of Jacob, or it might be today the house of Windsor, you would know that was a British royal family. That was the family associated with the particular uh, person or the line. So the word house... Can mean a whole lot of different things in English. The same thing in Greek. It can mean it can mean a group of descendants or a family, or it can mean a building. It can mean a structure. So you, when so now it's talking about house, seven houses here. You got to figure out which one is it talking about. Is it talking about one or both or whatever? Remember, David said, "I want to build the house for the Lord." He's thinking the temple. The Lord says, "You're not going to build the house." Someone else is going to build the house, and that one will be my son. Okay? Here it says he was a. That Christ, as the Son of God, was the builder of the house and is over the house. Obviously, that's what he's referring to. He's referring to that prophecy that he quoted earlier. But, but if you have to read the whole prophecy, understand it. So, so Christ is the son over his own house as opposed to Moses. Moses is the servant in the house. Now what is that referring to? Well, that goes back to Numbers chapter 12 when Aaron and Miriam were questioning Moses. Who's he? Why does, why does he have all the authority? Aren't we God's people too? What about us? And the answer that God did in striking them down and, and inflicting Mary with leprosy, he said, Moses is the faithful servant in my house. Uh, that, that means among his people. That's what he's talking about. Moses is the faithful servant in my house. So and, and so, this is the word, and it's, it's a, there's a particular word in the Septuagint. You know, people say, well, what's the word for, for a servant? Most people know, know a little bit of Greek. Doulos is is the, is the word. The the feminine word is doula. My wife uh, uh, used to work as a doula. As, and so they have birth doulas and par, postpartum doulas. Basically, it's someone who's serving the the people who are who are having children, have little children. So that's doulos is the word that's used everywhere in the New Testament for servant, except here. Here it's therapon. Here therapon is the word that's used in the Septuagint, and that's the word that's used in Numbers 12 where it says that Moses was a servant, and that's the same word that's used for the attendants in Pharaoh's house. You know, the people who were backing up Pharaoh when he's confronting Moses, they're, they're So it's, it's, a, it's an Old Testament word from the Septuagint that's brought forward here. Moses was the servant in God's house, but Jesus is the builder of the house. So there's the contrast here. He's greater than Moses. He is the one which says, I will raise up someone. So there's another statement here, verse 2. It says, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. So Jesus was faithful. He was the faithful high priest. And then it says at the end here, Verse 6, Christ is the son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So, Christ is the faithful priest over the faithful house. And he says, we are the faithful house if we hold, fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So this is the idea. Christ is the faithful priest. We must be the faithful house that he's talking about. So this is obviously not a physical building he's talking House in the sense of family. Right? This is, ref- I believe this is referring to a prophecy a lot of Christians are not familiar with at all. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 2 or 1 Kings chapter 2. Let's turn there. The faithful priest over the faithful house. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, there's a, Eli is the priest and there's a problem with his house, meaning his family. His sons are corrupt. And God sends a prophet to Eli to preach against Eli and against his house. And he says that you're going to fall and the priesthood is going to be taken away from you and your your house and your family. Uh, You have dishonored me. Let's pick it up in verse 30. So this is the, the prophet of God speaking to Eli the priest. This is in the days of Samuel. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says... I said, Indeed, your house and your father's house would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, Far be it from me, for I will honor those who honor me, and the one who despises me shall be dishonored. Behold, the days are coming. I will destroy your seed and the seed of the house of your father. And there shall not be an old man descended from you in my house forever, but for you. I will not destroy a man from my altar, even though his eyes have failed and his life is drained away. But all the descendants of your house shall fall by men's swords. Mm -hmm. Now this shall be the sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. And one day both of them shall die. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall who shall do all things that is in my heart and my soul, I will build him a faithful house. He shall walk before my Christ forever. So, God says, I, you're done for. You and your house are done for. I'm going to raise up a faithful priest who will be over the faithful house. And the word, when he says raise up, and, and the Greek and the Septuagint is the same word for resurrection, basically. It's, it's, I'm going to raise up... People assume he means figuratively. I think he meant it literally. I'm going to raise up a faithful priest over the faithful house. So the point the Hebrews writer is making in Hebrews 3 is Christ is the promised faithful priest over the faithful house. The question is... Are you the faithful house? Are you the faithful house? What is it going to take for you to be the faithful house? And he explains part of it right there. He says, whose house we are, in verse 6, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. We are his house if we persevere to the end. He is the faithful priest. We must be the faithful house. If you understand this concept, the rest of Hebrews falls very naturally in place. Well, the faithful priest. What kind of a priest is it going to be? He says, well, I'm going to bring a new priest. There's going to be a new line, a new house. It's not going to be the Levitical priesthood. What does it say in Psalm 110, which we just read? You are priest forever, the one who's going to sit at the right hand of the Father. You are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So, the high priest to come, the faithful priest that was promised to be raised up by God, would be in the order of Melchizedek. Why is all this stuff about Melchizedek? Because the Hebrew writer is explaining Jesus is a priest, but he's not a Levite. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is the high priest, the faithful high priest. Who was, who was promised. And it explains this in the rest of Hebrews. His priesthood was not based on his genealogy. He wasn't a Levite. He was both the king of peace and the king of righteousness. He's a priest forever. He's a greater priesthood. He was the priest even of Abraham, from which Levi is descended. And he, he's the one who offered the bread and the wine. So only two verses, we don't know that much about Melchizedek, but we know from the psalm that the great priest to come who would reign would be in the order of Melchizedek, he would be that kind of a priest, that's why all this is in there, explain, Christ is the faithful priest, we must be the faithful house, okay? Christ is the faithful priest. He is the one who offered sacrifices on our behalf. He entered into heaven itself with the blood of his own perfect sacrifice. It explains everything in the temple that was explained in Exodus and Leviticus. It was all, Moses had to follow all the details because this was a pattern for all the things that would follow with Christ and his sacrifice, and his reconciling us back to the Father, that he would enter heaven itself once, not once a year, but once for all time, with a perfect sacrifice of his own blood, which cleanses us in a way that the blood of animals never could. We now have direct access to the Father through the veil, separating the most holy place, the presence of God, from everything else has been torn in two from top to bottom. When Jesus died, we now have access to the Father through the body of Christ. So the point of all of this discussion about the tabernacle and the priesthood of Melchizedek is establishing Christ is the faithful high priest. And now the second part. We must be the faithful house of God. The house of Eli was unfaithful and they had the priesthood removed away from them, removed from them. So what does it mean to be faithful? Well, what does it mean? What does it mean for a husband or a wife to be faithful? Be loyal. It means you're loyal. It means you endure. It means you don't you don't go run off with somebody else. When you make a pledge as a husband or, or, or a wife to your spouse to be faithful until death do you part, that's what it means. To be faithful isn't just isn't just as long as our love will last. It's not just the belief of a moment. That real saving faith is believing but continuing and persevering to the very end. Hebrews chapter 10, we, we read the passage that sets up Hebrews 11. It says, My righteous one or my just one will live by faith. He who is coming will not delay. But if he does appear to delay, my righteous one will live by faith. He will continue in faith, but if he shrinks back, my soul will take no pleasure in him. That's the introduction to Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith. Hebrews 11 defines by example what saving faith is. A lot of people have the idea of saving faith is just believing in Jesus for a moment. If you believe in Jesus, you're saved and you can't lose your salvation. That's completely, That completely violates the whole point of, of the lesson in Hebrews. It says, no, that's not true. That saving faith, there are three aspects of saving faith which are illustrated by the examples here in Hebrews. Faith is believing in something you can't see, first of all. That's the first aspect. You believe something you can't see. If you can see it, it's not faith. By faith, we believe that the world was created. All the things visible were created by God from what was unseen. That's faith. By faith, Abraham believed that God could raise his son Isaac from the dead. That's why he was willing to sacrifice his son. So there's the element of believing something you can't see. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe in eternal life. We believe in that Jesus is coming back. We believe in something we can't see because of the evidence that's there. That's the first element. Second element is obedience by faith. Noah, in holy fear, built an ark. Faith isn't just believing, it's obeying. That's the acid test of faith. Are you going to obey, not just believe? Amen. Noah, by faith, built an ark. It says that the walls of Jericho fell by faith when the people marched around them for seven times. They didn't fall by works, they fell by faith because God told the people, march around the city and blow the trumpet. They did exactly what God says, and it says the walls fell by faith because they believed and obeyed. And the third element of saving faith is belief. There's obedience. The third element is persevering to the end. It says, Moses persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Okay? Think about that one for a few years. Go out in the desert and meditate on that one for a few years. (laughs) He saw him. Who is invisible? You know, people. People. I have friends who say, you know, I like Eastern religion because it's it's deep and it's mysterious. Well, I say, hey, I got. Let me try one on from my Eastern religion. My religion comes out of Asia as well. Go and see him who is invisible. Okay, go figure that one out. Moses persevered because he saw him who was invisible. All right, he saw him who you can't see. Moses persevered. It talks about all the heroes of faith. Who were persecuted and were tortured, and who would not abandon the faith? So, 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 saving faith is believing something you can't see. It's obeying the commands of God and it's persevering to the very end. That's the whole point. It says we are not of those who shrink back, but we're those who persevere and who endure. And all the takeaways that follow in Hebrews chapter 10, chapter 12, chapter 13. Uh, They all, all the things we talked about earlier, about staying away from sin, about watching out for fornication, about holiness. You've got to be living holy lives. One of the most challenging scriptures in the Bible, without holiness, no one can see the Lord. We need to be living set-apart lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, The motivation that we have, the examples that we have, the motivation for living this way, for being The faithful house. The first motivation is Jesus was the faithful high priest. He went all the way to the end. He was perfected through suffering, showing us what it's going to take for us. We shouldn't think it's strange if we're going through tough times, if we're facing suffering, if we're living righteous lives. We have the example not only of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who showed us the way. We have the examples of the great heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, who demonstrated a way of life, of living by faith. We have the admonition of Proverbs chapter 3 that talks about, listen, a good father is going to discipline his sons. Because he loves them, and he knows that this is going to produce something better for them later on. So if you're going through hard times, if you're suffering, if you're enduring trials and pain. It's because God, a sovereign God, loves you and is perfecting you. Jesus himself had to be perfected through suffering. And, and every father, every good father knows it that this is the way that it is. So we shouldn't be surprised, you know, drawing back to Proverbs chapter 3. Another reason to persevere, Hebrews 10 talks about the one who is coming. Jesus is coming back. And just because he seems to be taking a while, he's coming back. That is for sure. He's not going to tarry. We need to persevere and not be those who shrink back over time. And then Hebrews chapter 12 talks about our God is a consuming fire. We need to live in the fear of God, knowing the consequence of sin. What happens if we deliberately continue a life of sin? And the admonitions that he gives to us, the practical takeaways... He says we need to keep meeting together, so that we can encourage each other in our own zeal in the faith. You know, some I've seen many Christians. So over time they just get bored. It's like the Israelites with manna. You know, manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for dinner, and they start thinking, "Wow, we got to have all that tasty food back in the old life in Egypt. Wasn't that great?" They get bored. So a lot of Christians they get bored with a Christian life. They get they get they get tired of the same. The same things, they want some variety, they want some spice, and they start looking to the world for some excitement and pleasure, or just out of curiosity, don't go there. We need to be keeping each other on the straight, narrow path that leads to life. Don't be like Esau. It says, see that no one is a fornicator or a godless man like Esau who sold his inheritance for a a meal. Don't do that for a little short Satan's gonna offer you a little short-term pleasure of the flesh. And he says, just trade in your future inheritance of eternal life and the resurrection. Just give that up, just enjoy yourself, have as much pleasure right now. He says, No, you can't live like that. You can't be a godless person living like Esau. You gotta be like Moses, who forsook the pleasures of this world. Don't slack off, don't become bitter. Live a holy set apart life. Be devoted to living at peace with all people as much as possible. And if we're going to be the faithful house, the house isn't just the building, it's also the family. Like talking about Eli and his house, that Jesus is the high priest and he has his house. He's the faithful priest and we must be the faithful house. And I think that's what it's talking about at the end of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 13. Just as you had the high priest and the priests in the temple, we now have Jesus as the faithful high priest and we are members of his house, members of his family of priests if we, are, if we remain faithful. And that's how it addresses us at the end of Hebrews. Verse 10, in Hebrews 13, we have an altar from which those who serve at the temple have no right to eat. It's talking about we are the priests. We have an altar to eat that's greater than those priests in the past. And then addressing us as priests, again in verses 15 and 16, Therefore by Him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased we are priests what do priest do we offer prayers and sacrifices if we are a faithful house of God we're living holy lives we are eating from an altar that those priests had no right to eat from we are offering the sacrifices of praise to God and doing all kinds of good things, sharing with those who need, who are need. It says those are the kind of sacrifices that God is looking for. So Jesus is the high priest. Are you the faithful high priest? Are you the faithful house of God? Amen. Amen. Amen.